Good morning. What a joy it is to be in the house of the Lord together with the saints of God. Amen indeed. One point uh, you'll see in your bulletin that I wanted to make mention of is uh, the Thirst Conference coming up April 11th. Please be in prayer for that conference. Um, We are diligently now planning and preparing for what the Lord would have in that event. Um, You'll see that we have several coordinators there as well, pertaining to some housing responsibilities, um, transportation, as well as meals. We need some help, and I'm fully confident that many of you are desiring to be like Christ, like we talked about last week, to count others as more significant than yourself. You'll also see that in the bulletin I've titled this message, A Recipe for Success. All of us, to some degree or another, desire success in our lives. One internet article listed six reasons why we want to achieve success. It stated, we want to achieve success because it is a part of our life plans. We want the output related with certain success. We love the taste of of winning. We need stimulation. We want to compensate lack and failures from the past. We find success as a solution for our problems. If you're like me, many of you can relate, especially with number six there, as we strive for success in our jobs, in our relationships, in sports, especially for some of you young folk. Whatever the circumstance may be, what is our end goal in that success? What do we desire? Why are we searching it? Life is full of problems. Some big, some small. However, there always some seems to be somewhat of a relief as we proceed and walk into those problems desiring success when we win a sporting event perhaps win an award at work or have a successful day with our spouse or friends to some extent it feels as though it's an escape if you will as we focus upon that success but we all know it's only temporary The problems will eventually surface again. We can never escape them. What is it that enables us to persevere in the midst of those problems? To have joy in whatever our circumstances may be. Hopefully, as it is for me, our study through the book of Philippians is challenging us and encouraging us to appreciate what it means to persevere. What it looks like to live a successful Christian life. We began this series with an overview. And we looked at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Many of you probably remember that. We examined it in detail two weeks ago. Pertaining to what does it mean to actually conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Last week, we looked closer at that ultimate example for us found in Christ of what humility looks like. Counting others 
as more significant than ourselves. Thus far, we've seen three commands within this book leading up to our passage for today. In 127, as we alluded to, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or in 2.2, Paul says, make my joy complete. Or in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus. Within the next two paragraphs, we will see that Paul will shed more light upon what it means to actually walk that out. Or as our verse will see today, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Or we might say that he wrote this letter as a means to encourage the church to seek to how they can apply this great truth of what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. At the end of the day, our recipe for success will only be found in our pursuit of Christ and His Word, that we might be found worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the only success we know that carries meaning and will last, that is not temporary. This is what fills our lives with joy and empowers us to overcome in the midst of those daily problems. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, where we are today, will provide several answers for us to answer and articulate what communicates what it means to follow and live a successful Christian life. What contributes, as you see in your bulletin, what is the question that we're answering today? What contributes to a successful Christian life? Paul lays out several answers to that question to the church at Philippi, which obviously still apply to us today. Would you stand with me, please, as we read God's word? Verses 12 through 18. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, But now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You may be seated. A 
Our first answer to the question, what contributes to a successful Christian life found in verse 12 is love and respect for the body. The words to begin this verse, so that, connect to the previous flow of thought that Paul has been communicating. When we went through this verse, some of you might recall, several months ago, I preached a message from just verses 12 and 13. We discussed this word, beloved, as he communicates his deep, affectionate love for the church. In addition, we referenced Paul's use of the word obeyed when he's addressing the church as a whole. The former, as I just stated, relating to Paul's deep, affectionate, emotional love for the church at Philippi. And then the latter, this idea that we are to actually hear while also obeying. He then goes on to speak about obedience, and he says not only in his presence, but much more in his absence. Now, when you think of obedience, often my mind goes to, and perhaps some of you as well, go to that wonderful passage of Scripture, 1 Samuel chapter 15, in the account where we see Samuel actually confronting Saul and stating that obedience is better than sacrifice. However, what drives us without the surrounding of good and positive influences in our life to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as the verse concludes? As our first answer indicates, love is the key. One of the keys to the answer. Now, before you go as into that thought process of, come on, Pastor John, you're not telling me anything that I don't know. We need to ask the question. If we know it, which I know most of us here know it, why do we at times fall short? As I do as well. We all understand that. Paul felt emotion in his love for this church. We discussed that at length in the message from Philippians chapter 1. I I referred to it as a prayer of emotion. Deep, affectionate love that he had for the church. As we see even in this paragraph, he starts with this term, beloved, conveying a deep sense of emotion for the church. However, Don't forget in chapter 1, verse 9, that he connects love with knowledge and discernment. I believe that part of the reason that myself, as well as you, struggle at times is due to our failure to only see love from an emotional perspective. It's so much more than that. It involves an active, intentional choice to love. The phrase work out is actually another one of those present tense commands that we keep talking about. What does that mean? The command is ongoing. Furthermore, this verb communicates the sense of creating a condition that leads to completion. A successful life 
anchored in obedience, will be resolved to love the body with intentionality and focus. A resolve that involves an active choice to do so, not solely focused upon emotions. Why was Christ obedient to the point of death on a cross? He demonstrated His choice in yet while we were still sinners to be obedient unto death on a cross. He chose to love in a way that did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Obedience will most certainly be rooted in a love for God alone first, along with the body. But it also flows forth from a respect for the body. This phrase, fear and trembling, Paul uses it three times within the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as he relates with Titus, In Ephesians chapter 6, as he communicates the difference of understanding what it means, this relationship between the slave and the master. Or if we use it in our context, perhaps a manager or a boss and an employee. And then here, of course, in relation to this man-centered approach of connection with other human beings all three related to honor and respect of men this body emphasis continues to be on display throughout the letter we keep continuing and referring to this plural you that we see that paul uses in the greek text that he wants to communicate a message to the church as a whole we saw in chapter one This reference to the participation of the gospel that they had together. Partakers of grace together. The overall arching emphasis of unity and pursuing it. Or that foundation that we discussed from that first message on the book, the overview of the fellowship of Christ. You want to be successful in your Christian life? then love and respect the body as one component of working out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that look like? Does it look like loving and respecting the body and pouring yourself into our upcoming thirst conference? Or perhaps our Easter service to come? How are we serving together, loving and respecting one another in the ministries of this church? When is the last time that we've practiced hospitality? Loving and respecting the body of Christ. That is success. Now, if that was the only message, perhaps we might be tempted to despair. Why is that? Because if you're like me, We all still struggle with sin. We understand throughout these difficulties of life that at times we lack energy in the fight. Our second answer will provide the strength for you. And that is to trust in the sovereignty of God. 
and this is taken from verse 13, I mentioned a lack of energy as an obstacle for us. I will never forget one of the most difficult times in my life for my wife and I, considering a a certain health circumstance. I often felt the weight, the overwhelming feeling of anxiety and fear. The ability to pursue the attitude of Christ along with love and respect for the body was the furthest thing from my mind, unfortunately. I wanted to escape the pain and the anxiety of the current moment. I had no control over the circumstances. Have you been there? Have you felt desperation such as that? How are we to live a successful Christian life in the midst of circumstances such as that? One of those answers is to trust in the sovereignty of God. To trust that He is in control. And that He is working all things for the good of those that love Him. That He is giving you energy to persevere. Look at verse 13. It says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The word work here is where we derive the English word energy. When we lack energy for for successful Christian living, can we remind ourselves that God is both willing and working for his good pleasure in our lives, giving us energy for the struggle, for the fight. Remember Paul's prayer of confidence? What was that grounded in? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He then goes on to conclude the verse with the reason for his sovereign plan for his good pleasure. There's, of course, an element to struggles and difficulties that God uses in that beautiful passage of Romans chapter 5 to build character, to build perseverance, to build hope within us. However, we also know Another significant part of his good pleasure was that he came to seek and to save the lost, as Luke chapter 19 states. And you know what? You know what's a part of that process? Our unity. John speaks directly to it in chapter 17, verses 20 through 22. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. 
If you are a believer here today, you will be successful. Why is that? Because the Lord has willed that you will have energy to accomplish what He has asked of you. Is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 true? Of course it is, but we need to remind ourselves of it. That great passage that states, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Will you trust the sovereignty of God in your life? Whatever the circumstances may be, He will equip us with energy to love and respect the body. He will also use our pursuit of unity as a means or process of evangelism for His glory. Those two truths in and of themselves should serve to strengthen us alone. He will enable us to live a successful Christian life and to trust in the sovereignty of God as a major component of that. That's energy. That's strength for the struggle. That's success. Our third answer is an attitude of humility. Found in verse 14. Now, I must say that in preparation for this message, this section of the passage, I could not help but think of the current state of affairs for the church as a whole throughout the world. 2020, in many respects, hopefully has forced the church to do an inventory, if you will, of where we are at. Now, I might also add, that I wholeheartedly believe that God is using a unique time such as this to separate the sheep from the goats. The true church from the false. However, for those of us who are truly Christ followers, this verse hits home and hopefully challenges each and every one of us to self-reflect. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do you feel the weight of that as I do? A couple comments here. This is another command. God calls us to not grumble, murmur, and complain. Specifically, the words communicate the desire to not complain secretly. To not argue over differences of opinion. Now, just as I stated several weeks ago in a similar fashion, this by no means pertains to us abandoning firm biblical convictions. 
especially within these days. We need to stand for truth and fight against lies. Moses had this to say about the subject in Exodus chapter 23. He said, you shall not give a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked person to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the crowd in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to join together with a crowd in order to pervert justice. Although, what about the state of our hearts, the actions of our life towards our brothers and sisters in Christ in less important matters? If we, are be to, if we are to be successful in Christian living, then complaining and arguing must be avoided. We saw even within our Scripture reading today how clearly James speaks to the significance that many of our arguments stem from our own selfish pride. Listen to the verses again, 1 through 3 from chapter 4. But what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. How does that sit with us after that great example of Christ in the previous verses in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? as we think of an attitude of humility as a defense against grumbling and disputing and murmuring, that example of Christ is the ultimate example. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2, allows us to see that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. When the temptation comes to complain or argue over matters of insignificance, let us resolve to not do so. Our Lord commands us in that capacity. Successful Christian living certainly awaits the one with an attitude of humility. Now I might add, Successful not in the sense of your best life now mentality, but in the sense of a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our fourth answer to the question found in verses 15 and 16 is an eternal focus. Look with me again, verses 15 and 16. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, 
holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. To begin verse 15, Paul again uses one of those connecting words, so that just as we spoke of John 17 and how unity serves as a witness Paul now actually makes that connection within the passage. We practice love and respect for the body. We trust in the sovereignty of God. We practice the attitude of humility so that we might be a witness in this crooked and perverse generation with an eternal focus. Have you ever felt as though you were being falsely accused yet innocent in the matter? Successful Christian living has nothing to do with the concerns of false, unfounded, unbiblical accusations from the world. What do you expect from a crooked and continuously dishonest world? Once again, as we saw, James tells us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Success is found when you are blameless before God. There's a man by the name of Pastor James Coates that stands blameless before God right now as we speak in a prison cell in the country of Canada. Because he has chosen to fight for the lordship of Christ over his church. And yet the world, at least from a Canadian perspective, sees him as guilty. But yet he is successful as he sits in a prison blameless before God. This word blameless is used throughout the Septuagint 11 out of 12 times. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament referring to Job. Many of us are familiar with that great historical account. A blameless man indeed before God. None of us perhaps will ever experience the circumstances as he did, yet blameless. But by the way, just in case you feel the weight of not being blameless before God, as we all do at times, be encouraged. Job as well, discouraged at times, yet his life through faith exemplified blamelessness he goes on to illustrate several other characteristics revolving around a witness for christ with an eternal focus you see it within the verses he states that we are to be he desired for the church at philippi to be innocent free of guilt children of god we see that phrase children of god throughout 
John's epistle in 1 John. Children of God practice righteousness. Children of the devil practice sin. That we are called to be above reproach. Lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Living with an eternal focus is not just about being a witness here and now. Don't ever lose sight of that. But there's more. It's about living with the anticipation that the best is still yet to come. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 21, did we not? When Paul said, to die is to gain. Within this passage, we see him close out verse 16 when he says, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Have you ever felt the excitement of waiting to share the success of a certain day with a colleague or a supervisor? Or what about the anticipation of waiting to please your wife for a special day? Or maybe some of you are eagerly anticipating to let me know how much of the book of Philippians you've chosen to memorize. Don't remember that. Don't forget that challenge. Think of that anticipation and magnify it infinitely more as you consider standing before Christ at his judgment seat as a believer. Paul desired to boast before Christ and the church's success simply because he desired to be found living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, pleasing his Lord. He lived with eternity in mind, and he desired for the church to do so as well. As for us, is that our practice? Are we struggling with the problems of this life? Of course we do at times. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have to admit that. Perhaps if we take a step back and evaluate where we are at, we might find ourselves holding too closely to the things of this world. The comforts of this world. Success and joy most certainly await the individual that practices an attitude of eternal focus. Are we blameless while being a witness for Christ? Are we living as if to die is to gain, simply desiring to please our Lord and one day hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Master. That is success. In our fifth and final answer, we will see an example 
of one of the major encouragements found within this letter. A crucial element contributing to a successful Christian life, and that is a celebration of gratitude. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I mentioned my journey of anxiety and fear regarding our family's health crisis several years ago. Hindsight is twenty twenty, as the saying goes. I can certainly say, looking back, that I am full of gratitude of the Lord's providence and those circumstances as He taught our family how to rely upon Him. To know that He is a good God, a loving God, guiding us through the journey. Just this weekend, I had the privilege of sharing sweet fellowship with a wonderful brother in the Lord. A brother who has journeyed a very difficult path as well. In a similar vein, he would tell you that he's thankful and full of gratitude looking back, although the trial was difficult in the midst of it. However, I want us to think about these examples and compare them with the gratitude on the backside compared to what we see from Paul here in verse 17. This comment of being poured out as a drink offering refers to his dying in service as if he is the blood being poured out on the sacrifice And yet, on the front end, facing potential death, he says, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. The Greek text actually reads, I rejoice and rejoice with you all. Do you hear his heart and emphasis? This is not after the dust is settled and looking back. With gratitude. This is before the eye of the storm and the destruction and devastation that is coming. And still he desires to rejoice in the suffering and also to do it with them. He then, in the final verse, urges them by way of another one of these commands. To rejoice in the same way. A celebration of gratitude is essential when it comes to the ability to be successful in life in general. And for that matter, in suffering. Paul continues this theme throughout the letter. Chapter 3, verse 1, he states, Rejoice in the Lord. 
chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. James again states it wonderfully in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Many of you know it. He says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Over the years in ministry, I've had the joy and the privilege of coming alongside men and women in marriage and premarital counseling. What a privilege that is. To come together with men and women that desire a successful Christian marriage. In doing that, I've learned a lot from a book written by Gary Thomas titled Sacred Marriage. He had this to say concerning this topic of gratitude and success in marriage. He says, Contempt is conceived with expectations. Respect is conceived with expressions of gratitude. Beware of expectations. I will let you down. We will let each other down. But we can rejoice and be glad together in gratitude. We can have success when our hearts are committed to a celebration of gratitude and joy. More importantly, we can be found in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, in closing, what contributes to a successful Christian life? Loving and respecting the body, trusting in the sovereignty of God, practicing an attitude of humility, living with an eternal focus as a witness for Christ, and celebrating a life of gratitude. We all know some days are better than others. However, we are not alone in this journey. We can lead a successful Christian life by God's grace in the fellowship of the body. I'll leave you with a challenge. Take these answers and prayerfully consider how you might act upon them don't just be a hearer of God's Word, but a doer. Be specific. Write them down. Have confidence that God is willing and working your plan and His plan to completion for His good pleasure. Let us pray.